In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes again the studio number 3104410555 before i get into the book summary I have a couple announcements to make first of all if you listened last week on Wednesday uh, i was joined by a young man 17-year-old Brandon Poor Moradi, who is a classical pianist, and I think anyone listening uh, was really inspired and amazed by this young man, uh, and I was very happy to have him on my show. And um, out of his kindness, he let me know that he wanted to give away tickets to the concert he's having this Sunday, November 12th, which is a charity concert in honor of Hurricane Harvey at the Skirball Cultural Center. Tickets are available at brandoninconcert.com. But he said that he wanted to give away a few tickets to listeners here at Radio Hamra. So today, if you call in during my show and you're the 10th caller, um, you will get two free tickets to go to this concert on this Sunday. Now, I know we're fortunate to have listeners across the world listening, so if you do call in for the tickets, please be someone who is in the L.A. area or will be in the L.A. area this weekend on Sunday. Uh, it's at 5.30 at the Skirball Cultural Center. So thank you to Brandon Pumarati for joining me on the show last week and for also this generous offer of the tickets. Hope um Uh, to make some listener out there happy with those. Uh, I will likely be there myself this Sunday, so I hope to see you there. Um, Also, I wanted to make an announcement about the radio station. We will be switching um, from 100.3 HD3 to 94.7 HD3 sometime likely in the next week. We'll make more announcements as we get closer to that date. This only affects people who are listening through the radio. So if you listen through the app or the website or the telephone, um, those ways won't be affected. But if you are listening in your car or through the radio, you're going to have to adjust the dial to 94.7 HD3. Again, that'll be sometime next week. All right, before I do the book summary of this week, I wanted to announce the book for this week that I'll talk about on next week's shows. And that is The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. Now, this is the first book that is a fiction book that's not nonfiction that I'm doing as the book of the week, and I thought I might throw some in there. I actually have not read this. Um, I heard a lot about it, and actually in the book The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith, which was the book of the week a few weeks ago, she mentioned this book a few times as a very powerful book that talks about the meaning of life or living a life with or without meaning. So I thought it'd be interesting to include that. And of course, Leo Tolstoy is known as one of the best 
writers of all time, so I thought it would be a good place to start when it comes to including a book of fiction in the Books of the Week. So I hope you'll join me in reading that, and I'll be talking about it next week. Um, the Book of the Week for this past week was Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior by Leonard Maldonoff. Something like that. I looked it up a few times and now I realized I didn't remember exactly how to say it. M-L-O-D-I-N-O-W. He actually mentions it in the book that it's hard to pronounce his name. And I actually forgot to look it up again. But anyway, so this book, Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior, uh, was an interesting book looking at how a lot of what we think we see, things we remember, feelings we have, thoughts we have, uh, the ways we even look at ourselves, although we think it's all conscious and we're fully aware of it and it's with intention, as he points out in this book, very often it's actually unconscious. It's uh, out of your awareness and you actually might not even know why you feel or think something or you think you know, but it's actually for a reason other than what you think it is. And it's very humbling to read books like this to remember that as much as we think we're, for example, rational or logical or that everything we do has a reason, it turns out that's not the case. And actually, as he explains in the book, it's good that that's the case because there's too much information for us to process all of it um, completely and to take it all in. Even right now, as I look in front of me, there's thousands and thousands, maybe even you can say millions of bits of visual information alone that I could be taking in. And if I would actually be fully aware of all of them, I would be overwhelmed and wouldn't be able to do much else. So actually, as I look out, I think I'm seeing a complete picture. But as he points out, there are gaps in what I see that my brain essentially fills in um, by what it thinks would be the most likely thing to be there. And that's the mental image that I see. So this idea that there's some objective reality out there and what my senses do is just takes in that objective reality and brings it into my brain is not true. There's much more of a, a reproductive or productive process that is involved. I don't just see what's out there. I partially see what I want and what I expect to see. And that is true of all of our senses. So he explains it, uh, the author explains as us having a two-tiered brain one being the conscious and one being the unconscious. So the conscious are things that are in our awareness, things that we um, can see, things that we can know is going on, but then there's much more that's the unconscious. Uh, and he even shares an example of his own mother who uh, experienced World War II and had to go through things that completely changed her life. And as he explains it, she was a pretty worrisome person. It was always concerned about the worst things happening to him and other people um, and was really extreme in this. And he recognizes that this is likely due to the effect of being a child or individual who experienced war and that effect that it had on her for the rest of her life in an unconscious way influenced what she expected would happen or things she would fear. Um, and this is exactly what we see as therapists, when we work with people, that we see how much their childhood or things that they've experienced will color the way they see things now. If you had abusive parents who were neglectful and were hurtful to you, it's very possible you're going to have issues related to trust if that started early enough, because you'll assume that the people even who are most likely to take care of you were hurting you. 
And so as a result, you might not be aware of it, but you're more likely going to be less trusting of others. And you think it's for conscious reasons. So you say, oh, there was just a way he said something. Or, you know, there's, you know, the waiter asked this and he responded in this way. So I could just tell he's not a trustworthy person. But most of the data we deal with, especially socially, is very ambiguous. And we can find whatever result we want. So if we expect to see a mistrustful person, we'll see that. If we want to see a trusting person, we'll see that. But of course, this want that I'm talking about is unconscious and often out of our control and can be hard to change. But let me go through some of the different sections he talks about in this book. He talks about our perception, as I was saying before, our vision, how we think we're seeing and hearing what we take in, but that really isn't the case. But he also talks about memory and how we think of memory. A lot of people have this image of memory as a tape recorder. So we think everything that's happened in my life is basically been recorded and I could just pull up that file and recall the memory and remember everything that happened in that moment. When that is not the case, and countless studies have showed this, but still I encounter so many people who think this is the case, that everything is tape recorded in our minds, and you could just somehow, even through hypnosis, we can get to it. Now, there might be memories we have a hard time accessing that we could get to, but this idea of the tape recorder memory is not true. And so many studies have shown that we can introduce false memories and fake memories, or we could think we remember something perfectly, but there can be facts that show us that this is not the case. For example, they've done a very some ingenious studies, in some ways maybe a little deceitful, where they convince people that they went on a hot air balloon ride as a kid. Now this might seem like a hard or maybe impossible thing to be done, but with the help of their families, they were able to get some pictures of them when they were kids. They said, we got these. And they would essentially Photoshop a picture of them, for example, with an uncle in a hot air balloon. And the subjects would be a little surprised, like, I don't remember that. And almost all of them didn't remember it then. But when they'd have them come back a week later, they would have vivid details and memories of what happened. And the whole day would be like this big thing. Um, and it's not that these people were liars or they're trying to lie. But when faced with that information that they didn't know how to comprehend, their unconscious incorporated in a way that made sense. So now they had a full memory of what happened for something that never even happened. And it seems so real. And unfortunately, our confidence in our memory does not correlate with the accuracy of our memory. And this becomes a big issue in eyewitness testimony, where people think if the person says, I know it was him, that was the murderer, people become very convinced, well, he or she is confident, it must be true. But he points out some cases um, of people who were wrongly accused and acquitted later on just because of DNA evidence. And unfortunately, we still have many people who are convicted just based on one eyewitness's testimony, which the research shows us is very unreliable. So our memory is definitely influenced um, by many unconscious factors, things that we think uh, would not affect us, in fact, do. Even the way we ask questions of witnesses can affect them. Um, or if we show them a lineup of people, they assume one of those people has to be the perpetrator, so they're more likely to see that person there, even if, in fact, they are not the uh, they were not the person that committed the crime. Now, there's other ways that this subliminal influence or this unconscious has um, an effect. Another thing he talks about is how we judge people. Now, 
we'd all like to think and believe that we are not prejudiced and we're not judgmental. But the truth of the matter is something that I say on the show all the time. We all are. We are all essentially racists when it comes down to it. Now, how extreme and how much we act on it, those are all things that uh, can vary and we can try to work on. But when it comes down to who we are and what we believe and think, we all have judgments that we make about certain types of groups. Um, I actually think that's one of the issues we have in talking about things like racism or prejudice or discrimination is that I think all of us have some degree of it within us. It's unfortunately, we can say human to see things as a us and them, which he talks about in this book, this idea of us versus them that we all hold at some level and in different ways for different groups that we might belong to. And because of that, because I know I'm in some way racist or I have these judgments, I see it when I see it in other people, or I almost look for it in other people to get mad at them for that. So almost like projecting my own thoughts of racism onto other people. As soon as I get a smell of whiff that someone might be racist, I'm going to attack them. And I think that's something that the liberal left has been more guilty of um, in an attempt to uh, try to counteract racism or to make things more just and fair, which I'm all about. They've gone a little too extreme and attack anyone who says anything to the point where I think people are afraid to talk, to talk about race, racism, all of these issues, because we so quickly attack others. And in my estimation, it's partially because in our own unconscious, in our own minds, we have some degree of racism ourselves. So when we think we see it in others, we try to punish them for it as a way of uh, taking that thought from within me and putting it onto you. You're the one who's guilty of this not me. So we all have this in-group versus out-group bias. We'd like to think that we don't, but there's so many studies showing that even when we, they falsely give you a group, they say, okay, you guys are in a group and this is another group, you tend to favor your own group in whatever task it is that you might be doing. But the good news is the more we work together with people that are not in our group, whatever it might be, we actually can lose that feeling of us versus them. Um, and the famous example is the robber's cave uh, camp where two groups of kids were separated and had different campsites. And over time, they started to build this rivalry and it got quite ugly. But once they were asked to do a few tasks in cooperation, like helping to pull a truck that was stuck using rope and some other things together, they then felt good about each other and were able to get along. So it shows that when we work together, we actually can uh, lose that feeling of us versus them and start to connect to people in a better way. Now, we'd also like to think our judgments of people are based on merit of other kinds as well. For example, I wouldn't be, we would like to think that we wouldn't be influenced by the looks of a political candidate. We only care about what they have to say, what their policies are, how great of a leader we think they're going to be. We'd like to think that, but the truth of the matter is that's not the case. Um, and this was illustrated quite clearly um, when John F. Kennedy was running against Richard Nixon. And John F. Kennedy was known for being very handsome um, and charismatic and looking good, uh, while Richard Nixon was not those things. He was not uh, appealing as far as physically and was not really charismatic or very likable in his character. And this was most clearly demonstrated in that election when they had their first presidential debate. And people who watched it on television strongly favored John F. Kennedy to have won that debate, whereas people who heard it on the radio, who didn't see them, actually thought that Richard Nixon 
won the debate, which shows that clearly the effect of the looks made a big impact on people, so much so that they actually thought this person would be a better candidate to be president of the United States um, over Richard Nixon. So we see that we would like to think we're basing things on merit, but we have to accept that we're influenced by these factors and we're not even aware that we're being influenced by them a lot of the time. Now, we might think, okay, we judge others based on these unconscious things, but as it turns out, we even judge ourselves unconsciously as well, or unconscious effects um, are happening that affect the way I think about myself and that you think about yourself. Um, for example, there's something called motivated reasoning, which means that I can come to whatever conclusion I want based on an assumption I already might have, and later on tell myself um, it was for whatever other reason. So as they put it, Jonathan Haidt, he talks about that we can think about things either as a scientist or a lawyer. A scientist gathers the information and comes to a conclusion based on all the information, a theory or understanding that makes sense. Whereas a lawyer already has a conclusion. They either want to say, let's say, for example, not guilty or guilty, and then they try to find all the evidence that makes their um, already the belief that they have true. Now, we'd think most of the time we approach things as a scientist, but the truth is most of the times we approach things as a lawyer. We already make a determination or we have some snap judgment and then we try to find reasons that make sense of that ad hoc. Uh, for example, there was an interesting study where they had individuals see two pictures of two different people. So, for, for example, a young man would see a picture of two women and say, which one do you think is more attractive? And they'd say, for example, the one on the left. Now, unbeknownst to them, they would then hand them the picture, which would look like it was the one on the left, but actually they'd hand them the other person, so the one that they thought was not as attractive. And they say, okay, now look at the picture and tell us why you think she's more attractive. And without missing a beat, they would start giving reasons. Oh, it was her smile, or there's something about the way she's looking that makes me think she would be nice to talk to, X, Y, and Z. So even though it wasn't the person they thought was more attractive, because it was what they thought they believed, what they saw, they gave reasons for it. And that's what we're doing a lot of the time. And really, if we hear each other, even hear ourselves, you'll see that happening. You tell someone, why do you like this? And they'll say, the reasons are this, this, and this. Well, it turns out a lot of times we don't know what the reasons are, or we think we do, but a lot of times we just come up with reasons that we think make the most sense. They might not actually be uh, what was the cause of our belief or for us to think that way. So this book was an easy read. Um, he shares lots of stories, research that point out some really fascinating ways that the mind works, or in some ways we can say doesn't work, um, makes mistakes, but that's actually part of being human. And I thought that was really interesting. It, it gave me a better understanding of the unconscious or how much is out of our awareness and how much that does affect us. So uh, if you'd like to give this book a read, again, it's Subliminal, How Your Unconscious Mind Rules Your Behavior by Leonard Molinoff. And the book for this week is The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, and again, uh, if you'd like the tickets to Brandon Pumarati's concert, you can call in now, and the 10th caller will win tickets for this Sunday's concert. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back. Let's go to a caller. Uh, Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. 
Yes, hi, we're on the air. Hi, uh, I have two years. One is uh, 19, 20, the other one is 15. Mm-hmm. And I'm working full time. Um, uh, my daughter, the uh, second one, her, one of her friends just asked her to take them to take her during the Christmas to uh, Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, for they are going to for a trip for uh, they are going in different areas in Colorado. It's about a two weeks trip, mm-hmm. uh, and they offer her. I know the family; they are Persian, and I know their parents. And the girl is her best friend. Okay. And uh, she asked her, asked her to take her for uh, this trip. What do you think? Do I have to? And I, I know I'm not gonna have this opportunity or even time during, uh, d- during the year to take care because her uh, father is kind of sick, kind of disabled. Mm. So um, I'm very busy with the work. But during the year, maybe one week or during the summer, I take her somewhere, but not like this trip. Okay, so I mean, you know, these types of questions, I, I never look at them as black or white, because uh, I think it's important. It's not that anytime your kids want to go somewhere, obviously you let them go. And I also wouldn't say they never can go. I think what's very important is how you feel about this family and how comfortable you feel with them. And also making sure you can stay in contact with her and talking to her a bit about things if you have any concerns you know, talking to her about them, especially with younger kids. She's 15. Uh, doesn't mean, she, you know, unfortunately things can happen to anyone, but she's a little bit older that she can be aware of what's going on. But one thing we always have to worry about, I almost don't like saying it because I don't want to scare parents, but it's a real thing. So we have to talk about it. You know, there can be some kind of sexual abuse or something that can happen in, in sleepovers. It does happen. And with younger kids, we want to be more concerned and aware that it can be a risk. Um, but at 15, again, there's depends on who else is around, who's going to be there, and you want to make sure you feel comfortable with them. But you can even talk to her about that um, and uh, and make sure you feel okay. But I, I think it seems like it's okay if you feel okay about it and you can be in contact with her and it's an experience she will like. I think that that seems okay. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, I know the family... Um and their parents, uh, and I know uh, my daughter is very smart, and I educated her about this kind of stuff, even mm-hmm. drugs and sexual abuse. Um, and she likes to explore different uh, places. So I just wanted to be sure is, if it's okay. Uh, I'm 90% okay, and I know uh, the parents and the places they can, they are going, and um, I just wanted to double check with you. Sure. Well, when you say you're 90% okay, what's that 10% where you're not okay? Uh, 10% is about the places they go. I know they are not going to anybody's house. They are staying in hotel. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just say 90% because I don't know about the others, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. exactly where they are going or, sure. you know. What, who they going to visit during their mm-hmm. trip. Yeah. Well, if you want, you can ask them about that. You know, maybe talk to the parents to get a better understanding. That might give you more comfort. And actually, it's maybe good that you said that when you said 90%. And, um, you know, of course, it's not like you have a specific number that we know what that means. But the way you're feeling is that way. 
because really you'll never have a hundred percent, you know, even when she gets older and she wants to go somewhere or you have a 19 year old, there's no 100% about what, what they're doing or their safety. And we don't really know. There's always some kind of risk, but if you're, you know, we do want to make sure we're being responsible. And it seems like this family, you feel comfortable with them. Um, and it's her best friend, so they're close, so they'll have a good time. If you have some concerns about what they're doing, probably they're going to be okay, but you can even just talk to the parents and see, I just wanted to know what's what, like what's happening on the trip. I'm, I'm happy and, you know, thanking them for taking her and all of that. Um, but if that makes you feel more comfortable, you can know. But it seems like you trust that your daughter will will take care of herself. Yes. Good. And that's all we can you can do, especially as she gets older. So to me, at 15, going with a friend with a family that you seem like you trust, I, to me it feels okay. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Hope she has a good time. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. you too, thank you. All right. Um, yeah, you know, that's an important issue she brought up because parents ask about this a lot. Should I let my kid go here? Should I let my kid go there? And there's a lot of anxiety about safety and what can happen. And I'm very big on making sure we're careful and make the right decisions and we don't send our kids to places where we don't know uh, or we don't know the people that well let's say but we want to give them experiences and allow them to have um, some things that they go through that they like now when it comes to sleepovers with younger kids I think you need to be more careful when they're five six seven eight in grade school it is unfortunately a real risk that things do happen now it's not to make you think that every time your kids go somewhere they're at risk um, for, let's say, sexual molestation or assault, but it is a real thing that parents have to be aware of. And she said something about talking to her kids about that, and this is, uh, again, a very important thing. I've talked about it so many times on the show, but I'll use this opportunity since she brought it up, that from a very young age, uh, actually even three, four, you can start talking about it in a more general way, telling your kids about how their body is their body. And they have the right to say who touches it or who doesn't touch it or if they like or don't like the way someone is touching them. That is always up to them. And, of course, you don't just show this by telling this to them or you don't just tell them this. You show it to them. So you don't force them to hug or kiss anyone, even yourselves. Uh, I love kids and babies, and when I see them, I do want to hug and kiss them because they're so cute. But you do want to be aware of they have to want it. And if they don't like the way you're hugging or kissing them, even if it's your own kid, parents say, oh, it's my kid. I can do whatever I want to them. No, no, you can't. And you shouldn't. Because if you want to show them that they have the right to say what does and does not happen to their body and how they are touched, then you have to show them that even with you, it does matter, that you're going to respect that. And of course, extending that to family, or if you go to a dinner party, that they don't have to hug and kiss everyone if they don't want to. It's always up to them. So you let them know that their body is their body and they have control over that and they have the right to say what they like and don't like. Also, from that very young age, you can let them know there are some parts of your body that no one else gets to see or no one should see except for mom and dad when they're changing you or helping you with something, to the bathroom, things like that. So you let them know that some parts are uh, private parts that we keep just for ourselves and we don't show to other people. So they know that this is not okay if someone is trying to look at them or show them their those same parts on their body and also you let them know very clearly that no matter what they can always tell you about a friend they make or a relationship they have or if someone does something to them that they like or don't like because unfortunately a lot of times the mo of 
child molesters is to tell the kids that you can't tell your parents or this is our little secret. And oftentimes they'll go further and say, make threats that I'll hurt you or I'll hurt your parents if you tell anyone. And kids can feel like they have no choice but to keep the secret, unfortunately. But it can be very important to let them know, no matter what, you can always share that with mom or dad. You can let us know. We'll, we'll make sure you're okay and we'll take care of you. So it, it is important to talk about these things. And parents sometimes think, well, I don't want to tell them this to scare them. And you don't tell them in a way of, be careful, every man and woman out there is going to do this to you and you have to be on high alert. But you're just letting them know, again, in a broader way, not just about specifically sexual molestation, but just that their body is their body and that they have the power to say what happens to it and what does not happen to it, and that you're empowering them. So rather than making them scared, making them afraid, your goal is to actually empower them and make them feel that they are more in control, um, that they can dictate what happens and that they can come tell you if and when they need help in any kind of way. And I think in lots of communities, but especially in the Persian community, we believe that keeping things taboo is better. Let's just not even talk about it. Let's not even imagine it. I don't want to even think about it. So I don't want to talk to my kids about it, but that's not the best approach because that's not facing reality. Of course, we don't dream or dare that it ever happens to our loved ones or anyone we know, but we know it does happen. And we know that that danger is out there and it's better to be prepared and have our kids be prepared because you can try to protect your kids the best way that you can. Uh, but most of the time, or a lot of the time, they're not going to be right under your supervision. So you want to arm them and prepare them to take care of themselves the best that they can um, just like this mom seems like she hopefully is done with her daughter, that she'll trust that she'll be aware of what's going on and take care of herself um, in that situation. And there's no 100%, so hopefully she's feeling good enough to go, and her daughter, I'm sure, is excited to get to go on this trip with her kid. But don't be afraid to talk to your kids about big issues. They can handle it. You have to use, of course, the appropriate language and in a way that makes sense to them and that they can take in. But don't be afraid to talk about big issues like molestation um, and sexual abuse because they can handle the positive side of it of empowering them and recognizing that they have the right to protect themselves and to dictate what does and does not happen to their body all right we've reached our last commercial break and i think we might have already got a winner for the tickets i'm going to check with amir during the commercial break but just if you'd like to call in anyway 310-441-0555 you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui we'll be right back welcome back I uh, wanted to announce that we did have a winner in the concert ticket gev giveaway. Um, I hope I'm saying it right. Remik Satyan um, called in and we was one of was the tenth caller. So they will be getting the tickets for this Sunday uh, at five thirty at the Scribble Cultural Center. Brandon Poor Moradi is doing a concert, piano and other music to raise funds for Hurricane Harvey. So I hope to see you there. But congratulations to Remik for winning those tickets um changing gears to a very sad topic that unfortunately comes up in the news too often there was another shooting in the united states this time in at a rural church in texas where 26 people 
at least were killed. I know many are still in the hospital. Um, very heartbreaking, of course. Um, as always, I won't announce the name of the shooter, and I hate to even say it in that way because it shows how many times in the few years I've done my show there have been mass shootings in the United States. Um, but unfortunately, it was a very sad event that happened yesterday. Now, not to try to make this a political debate, but uh, Trump, President Donald Trump mentioned that this is a mental health problem at the highest level. Uh, and this is something that's brought up a lot when we have mass shootings. Of course, we try to understand the why. Why did this happen? Why did this individual do it? And of course, anyone who in that moment is willing to take so many lives is not in a mentally stable place, of course. Uh, but actually, they aren't always mentally ill, uh, which is uh, quite interesting. Um, and related to that, although we tend to think of people who are mentally ill as violent, as it turns out, um, people with severe mental illness are 10 times more likely to be victims rather than perpetrators of violence. So they're more likely to have violence uh, be done unto them um, rather than to be violent. Unfortunately, the stereotype is that people who are mentally ill are just unstable and are going to kill and do uh, quote-unquote crazy things. But this actually does not appear to be the case from what the data tells us. Now, could mental health be involved? Of course. And do we have a mental health problem in the United States? Absolutely. And I'm all in favor of increasing services. Uh, always on the show, I try to talk about equating medical and uh, mental illness so that we get the same kind of treatment for both, both treatment as in the care that we receive, but also the way we talk about them and unfortunately the stigma that is still attached to mental illness. But I think comments like that unfortunately reinforce this idea and further stigmatize the mentally ill, that if you're mentally ill, we, we have to fear you, that you're someone who has to be feared, whereas they're actually more likely to be the victims of violence and to perpetrate it themselves. Um, and I also don't want to make this a debate on gun control, but I do think it's worth talking about. And I know that each time one of these issues come up and one of these shootings happen, people say, well, don't politicize it and don't talk about guns yet. It's as if you are uh, dishonoring the victims. But I think that whenever an issue like this comes up, or whatever the issue is, it actually is the reason or is reason why we should talk about it. Uh, to me, not talking about all the issues, I'm not saying gun control is the only one, would be actually uh, disrespectful to the victims, in my opinion. Uh, if I am ever killed in some way and there's some issue related to it, please talk about it that day. Because that means, you know, I would rather you take it seriously rather than say you have to respect what happened to me and not talk about it. No, respect me by actually talking about it. That's my own personal preference or belief about that, that to not talk about the issues related to allowing this horrible thing to happen would be uh, disrespectful and would be allowing those lives to be lost in vain. So I think it's worth talking about. Um, and I think it's very unfortunate what happened and I do think that, yes, this person was not in a mentally good state when that happened. But the access to guns that we have in this country allows for people 
to commit these types of crimes or for it to happen more often than it does in other countries. It's not that America has more mental illness than other countries. It tends to be pretty equal from country to country. And of course, there's lots of way to me measure mental illness, but it's not that the U.S. has a mental health problem or epidemic that's stronger than other countries, yet we have so much gun violence. So I think it's worth looking at the gun issue. And again, I don't want to make it too much about a political debate. Um, but taking that one step further, I was talking with my father before I came on the air. We were watching the news a bit in his office. And, um, you know, it's so sad to see this. And again, it's happening so often. I feel like we still haven't recovered from the Las Vegas shooting, which was horrific uh, about a month ago. And then here's another one. And unfortunately, um, it might not be too long before there's another one. I don't want there, that to be the case, but that's been the pattern so far. But I was telling him some thoughts I've had about this that I think what's really sad is that this has become almost part of the American culture. And I know that might not make sense, but by that I mean it's almost become a way of expressing yourself in this horrific, horrible way. Um, that if you're really upset with society, if you're really upset at someone or things that are happening, a mass shooting is one way to express that. In a way, there are culturally dictated ways of expressing things. Like, you know, unfortunately, there's even things like honor killings, or um, if you had disgraced your family in certain cultures, you were supposed to kill yourself in a very ceremonious way. I think, unfortunately, this has become part of the American culture. I don't think it's it has to be, or it always will be, but I think because of also the media coverage of these types of events, it's so much in people's minds as a way to express something that they're feeling, of course, to get some type of recognition and to be known, which uh, is probably one of the biggest drivers of a lot of the behaviors we're doing these days, especially with social media, but it becomes this way of expressing yourself, and I think that's really unfortunate, and I, I hope that does change, because... Uh, I th the way I see that this pattern is that people have a certain feeling and then we look at ways of expressing that feeling. And when it comes to feelings towards society, we take bigger actions and this has become one of them. Um, now, I also think we can look at a bigger picture and almost like a sociological viewpoint too, even wider than what I was just talking about. And I think the American mindset contributes to these acts of violence as well. Um, it's not about blame that I bring this up and try to understand the culture that we're living in. And of course, many cultures still, or many countries still, are very violent and aggressive. But I think the United States takes a pretty strong stance on being the, the most aggressive it can be, or involved in lots of places that maybe it shouldn't be. And the MO that I see of the United States is to kill all your enemies until you feel safe, which to me never works or never makes sense. Um, you can't kill all your enemies to get to world peace. It just doesn't work that way. You have to uh, try to work with them and to reconcile differences and issues in order to have peace. You don't create peace by war and killing. You create peace by creating peace, by creating that uh, connection between you and the other side. And unfortunately, we haven't been, been doing that for many years here. And I think it actually has an effect on the people uh, to use your strength and dominance. That's another kind of American ideal, this feeling of we're more powerful than other countries. So we have the right to do what we want to do 
or when push comes to shove, use your power and your dominance over them. And when people feel frustrated and they feel little, one way to react to that is to get a gun or get some kind of weapon and then take it out on people, become more powerful, to use violence as a way of achieving your goal of having power or recognition or getting your revenge on other people. And unfortunately, we're seeing it happening time and time again. So any issue like this, it's not going to be a single issue um, matter. There's no one solution to something like this, in my opinion. Do I think guns are involved? Absolutely. I think that is an issue that we have to deal with. But just trying to get rid of all the guns today is not going to solve it. It's a, that itself is a long process. Is mental health part of it? Yes. And even related to that with guns, should someone who's severely mentally ill be able to get a gun? I, I know I mentioned that people who are mentally ill are not necessarily violent, but I do think there's an instability that means that we maybe don't want to give them the most powerful firearms. We might want to consider what state they are in when we give them those firearms. Um, so there's a connection there as well. But mental illness, yes, we need to work on that. But I also think there's bigger cultural issues at play. Violence is a big part of American culture, even a part of American sports. When you look at football, people seem to not care so much about the health of the players as long as they get to see the types of hits they want to see. And we don't want to even accept that maybe these players are suffering injuries that are going to affect them the rest of their lives. We keep watching and we want to be in denial about what's actually going on when people are getting hurt. So I think there's cultural factors too. This idea that uh, if you don't like someone, you can use violence and aggression to get what you want. Or if someone has hurt you, that's a way to respond. And related to that is that idea for men in general. You know, we try to look at um, factors to connect the various shooters, race, age, uh, mental illness, whatever else it might be. But there's one factor that is pretty clear, and that's being male. That's almost all the ones I know of have been male uh, shooters or actors. And so, yes, we can say men are naturally more aggressive, maybe, and testosterone makes them so. But I think it's bigger than that and the idea that men have been taught that anger is a way to express yourself and sadness and vulnerability are not. So being aggressive and violent can even be manly and reinforce your strength or your status or who you are. But crying or being upset or sharing that you're hurt is not. That's not masculine. It's not strong. It's actually weak. And I think that has big implications. And I'm, of course, not blaming the shooting just on that issue. But I think it does have an effect on violence in general and how acceptable it can be. That still it's more acceptable, in my opinion, the way I see the culture and how it reinforces things for a man to be violent than for a man to cry, for a man to be aggressive and hurt people than for him to uh, show vulnerability and weakness. And that's something to me that's very important. And the reason why I talk about that a lot on the show is because I think the effects are really large and permeate a lot of different issues, even from sexual harassment to domestic violence to drug use um, and on and on. So, of course, very sad about what happened yesterday and our hearts and prayers go out to the victims and the victims' families. But as many people note, prayers and thoughts don't go very far. Yes, those are positive sentiments, and they're very nice. But if we don't talk about what's going on and try to make changes, 
um, really our thoughts and prayers are very empty. It doesn't seem like we care that much if we don't try to make a difference or make some changes. And so I hope we'll continue the discussions on the issues related to anything that's going on, but especially these types of horrific events, because we can't ignore them. We can't just hope we can pray them away. We have to do something about them, and it can involve things like gun control and debating that, mental health, and the culture at large. But I hope we uh, will work towards progress rather than just sending thoughts and prayers and sitting back. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show again. This Sunday, November 12th, at the Skirball Cultural Center, you can see Brandon Pormaradi in concert raising money for the victims of Hurricane Harvey. That's this Sunday. Um, and congratulations again to our winner, and I will be there. So hope to see you there uh, this Sunday, November 12th. And again, a big thanks to Brandon Pormaradi for offering the tickets to see him in concert on Sunday. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio and the callers and listeners out there. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. Have a wonderful night. <laughs>